Well, good evening and welcome to the Middle East Centre here in Oxford. My name is Michael Willis. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Friday seminar series from the Middle East Centre for Hillary Term. This is the first in the eight-week seminar series for Hillary Term. We had hoped that we would be holding all of this term seminars in person, as has been the tradition of the Middle East Centre. However, the vagaries of the COVID virus, uh, notably the recent Omicron variant, which paid me a little visit last week, and I'm, but I'm feeling much better, as I'm sure it's paid a lot of people on this call uh, in recent weeks, has unfortunately obliged us to run the first two weeks of the seminar series online. We are currently waiting to see if we need to run the rest of the series online, but are currently reasonably hopeful that we'll be able to run a substantial part of the latter part of the series in person, but, but we will keep you posted on that. However, holding the series online does allow us to invite in friends and attendees, both old and new, who might not normally be able to come to Oxford itself. So we're delighted that many of you are able to join us from the farther afield this evening, and welcome to you. Now, last few terms of Middle East Centre, we have had an overarching theme for the seminar series. We looked at the Middle East and the environment last term, in Michaelmas term. We looked at authoritarianism and we looked at the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring or Arab Revolutions last year. This term we won't be running an This is because for a number of reasons. Firstly, it allows us to address a, a wider and more diverse array of subjects and issues throughout the term rather than sticking to one particular theme. And, and more specifically, it allows us to look firstly in detail at some of the regrettably ongoing crises in the region. We will be having sessions later in the series in the seventh and eighth week on the crises in, in, in Syria, then on Yemen. More happily, it gives us the opportunity also to have a forum for introducing and discussing recent research on the region, particularly a number of books that have appeared in recent months, specifically ones written by members of our own academic community here at the Middle East Centre. Uh, and, and Oxford uh, more generally. Now, whilst this may seem like blatant self-promotion by the Middle East Centre, which indeed it is, it does, I think, answer a complaint that has been occasionally raised by, particularly by students at the centre, but we never get to hear much about the work and research of the actual members of the academic community here in Oxford. And I'm hoping that this term's Friday seminar series will hopefully answer this criticism by giving a platform to research of a number of people. Firstly, three of the fellows at the centre itself, Lauren Mignon, Neil Ketchley and Osama Al-Azami. One of the members of the advisory board of the centre, Joseph Sassoon. And also two members of the wider academic community at Oxford, Marilyn Booth of Magdalen College and Raphael Lefebvre of New College. I'm therefore delighted to be beginning the series with one of my colleagues here at the Middle East Centre, Dr. Osama Al-Azami. Asama is the Departmental Lecturer in Contemporary Islamic Studies at the Faculty of Oriental Studies, a position he's held since 2019. Asama completed his PhD at Princeton University in the US, having studied Arab and Islamic studies here at Oxford as an undergraduate. And Asama has been a truly wonderful addition to our community, bringing in great new energy and a host of new ideas. He's also contributed hugely to our teaching here, notably through the courses he has taught on, on modern Islamic thought and Islam and politics. And also for a relatively young scholar, he has already a very impressive research record. And I'm very, therefore very pleased to have the opportunity to discuss this 
in the form of his new book, just published by Hearst. Uh, when did it actually come out, Osama? Is it is out? Is it this month or last month? It was out with Hearst in November. It's out in with November. EP this month. This month, right? So it's out. It was out. So it's been out a couple, a couple of months, and the book is entitled "Islam and the Arab Revolutions: The Ulama Between Democracy and Autocracy." Osama, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me and uh, for your very generous introduction. It's really delightful to be able to present uh, at the Middle East Centre among friends, colleagues, students who I also consider colleagues. And it's really, you know, an honour to be able to do this in your company because much of this book was also written in your company, as it were. So to share it with friends who, with whom conversations have taken place that have informed the writing of this book as well. So this is this is a book which I've, in a sense, been writing since 2013, in some form, although it really took off from 2019 onwards. And it, it's always wonderful to see one of these long projects come to fruition in this way. And in the interest of both self-promotion, but all, also, I hope, the benefit of our viewers, I've got a couple of codes on the screen, which when this is shared on YouTube, hopefully will also be uh, easily accessible. And it'll also be on the final screen. Um, if you're beaming in from across the Atlantic, what you'll be concerned about is the global OUP one on the bottom and Hearst for anyone based in the UK, you'll be able to get 30 to 35% off, which is always handy with these expensive academic books. So this is a book which really looks at the way in uh, in my view, a relatively understudied dimension of uh, the Arab revolutions, sometimes referred to as the Arab Spring, sometimes referred to as the Arab uprisings. I'm not particularly committal on that. Uh, I didn't spend a great deal of time explaining the word. But this dimension is basically the role that religious scholars had to play. And I, I think their sort of role is significant. Uh, you know, to a certain extent, sometimes scholars perhaps are overly preoccupied with the role of intellectuals in these sorts of activities. And a lot of the time, it's, uh, I think, justifiably the case that people have focused on the on-the-ground actors and the political actors. Um, but I, I wanted to sort of pay attention to a, a set of actors who are not just somewhat neglected in the literature, but also uh, with whom I share a certain affinity. And, you know, by this, I'm referring to the fact that I am myself uh, seminary trained as well as academically trained. And so, you know, some of these scholars are people I've met personally, or have studied under, or are teachers of my teachers. So it's a really interesting sort of type of exercise writing a book like this. And I reflect on my positionality briefly in the introduction and the epilogue of the work. But the overall sort of structure of the work is one that looks at, it, it's more of a descriptive intellectual history and to a certain extent, I guess, a socio-political history that looks at the ways in which uh, the scholars responded to uh, the Tunisian revolutions of 2011, followed by the Egyptian revolution of 2011. And then as that transitioned into the maelstrom of activism and recrudescence, you could say, of the old regime within Egypt, the focus of the book really directs it. I direct most of my attention to Egypt, and I look to 2013 as the major moment, of course, in Egypt with the Egyptian coup and its aftermath. And a lot of people don't realize the extent to which religious actors were implicated deeply in legitimating the aftermath of the coup, including, indeed, the Rabah massacre, which is kind of the, the, the darkest moment in Egypt 
in 2013. And so, uh, you know, my, my chapters go over this and I'll, I'll be in what follows presenting, hopefully, unless I have any glitches, <laughs> presenting sort of, in a sense, the Arab revolutions through the eyes of the ulama, through the eyes of these Islamic clerics. And in the book, which is, you know, a fairly lengthy, um, about 400 pages, just, just shy of work, I delve quite deeply into the religious arguments. And I can't really, you know, go into these in any great detail, but I hope that I can give a flavor of what comes up in the book. And perhaps in the Q&A uh, session, we can sort of explore some of these if anyone's interested. So my first slide, and I should be going through these slides reasonably quickly, as I understand, uh, Michael, I've got about 20 minutes or so to go through all of this. 25, 25 minutes, half an hour, Osama, okay. so yes. So my first slide is basically reflecting on the first two chapters, you could say, and the first two chapters of, after the introduction are looking at Yusuf al-Qaradawi, this fascinating figure, uh, Egyptian based in Qatar, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and a graduate of the Azhar, perhaps the Azhar's most uh, recognizable scholar in recent decades. He's now retired, so he's not really in the public light, uh, eye anymore. And he is a figure born in 1926. So in 2011, he's already well into his 80s, but someone who is, you know, becomes a very forceful religious voice advocating for uh, the Arab revolutions for the most part. I say in most places because come uh, March 2011 and Qardawi is remarkably reticent about Bahrain. Okay. And so that's, you know, something that is noteworthy and, and there are interesting discussions to be had about that. But what's also interesting is his advocacy, his kind of tenacious advocacy of, quote, peaceful revolutions, yani, uh, what he calls al-mudaharat as-silmiya, peaceful protest, and his opposition to any kind of engaging in violence in places like Egypt and Tunisia. We can talk later on about the way in which that shifts for Syria and Libya and why that is the case. You know, in a telescope form, I would say that Qardawi perceives those as cases of self-defense rather than cases of initiating any kind of violence. And uh, after the success of the Tunisian revolution, uh, and he's, he has a show on Al Jazeera, which he dedicates entire episodes week on week to uh, the supporting these revolutions on religious grounds, saying that these are legitimate from, uh, on the basis of, you know, religious and scriptural sort of uh, justifications. And he does the same for the Egyptian revolution. Of course, Egypt is the most populous uh, state in the Arab world and the region as a whole. And it's, it's falling, quote unquote, to the revolutions uh, was an immensely significant sort of event. And Qardawi was fully behind the protesters, you know, ahead of the Muslim Brotherhood, ahead of uh, the Azhar as an institution. And uh, his sort of religious reasoning very much is based on a Quranic concept known as Amr bil ma'ruf al anil munka, commanding or enjoining the good and forbidding what's wrong or, or forbidding uh, evil. And on the flip side, you have the Egyptian religious establishment. So moving to my second slide, you have these two figures. The chap on the left is Ahmed al-Tayyib, the grand imam of al-Azhar. The chap on the right was the former, he's the former, now the former grand mufti of Egypt, Ali Gumara. And both these scholars to differing degrees sort of express their uh, disquiet at the protests, but both of them 
are quite unequivocal that the protests um, should be considered haram or, you know, from an Islamic legal standpoint, prohibited. And uh, as I will discuss in later sort of slides, uh, Ali Gomad becomes particularly vociferous in his advocacy of an aggressive crackdown against the Muslim Brotherhood once that, you know, is possible after the um, coup of 2013. Now, these figures, I explore their reasoning and their justifications in chapter three of my book. And uh, a lot of it's based on notions of stability order. They're not as rigorously grounded, in my estimation, within the Quran or within the sort of hadith literature or the juristic tradition, but the echoes are there. And they certainly can, you know, generate certain types of arguments in religious um, sort of language. Another set of scholars, uh, I describe them here as eventually counter-revolutionary. They start off either sort of quiet, mute, as it were, or indeed the chap on the left who's a, an interesting figure because he's actually an American. Like, what's he doing in the midst of the maelstrom of uh, Middle Eastern revolution? But uh, from America, he was writing enthusiastically about uh, the Egyptian revolution. And, uh, you know, I explore, uh, part of the reason he's included here is he's, a reasonably influential Islamic scholar in the West, who is probably among the Islamic scholars in the West, one of the most recognized in the Middle East, particularly as he's now a political appointee in the United Arab Emirates. He's the vice president of something which I'll talk about a bit later called the Forum for Promoting Peace in Muslim Society. So this is Hamza Yusuf. And the other chap here being uh, kissed on the forehead by uh, none other than uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates. This chap is Abdullah bin Bayer, a very eminent scholar who worked closely with Yusuf al-Qaradawi for well over a decade, but someone who soon finds himself in the midst of the Arab revolutions on the, the side of the, uh, those opposing these uh, revolutions. So the, the sort of the status quo uh, states, or most notably perhaps the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. So um, I, I explore sort of their arguments and their reasoning. And, and with respect to Abdullah bin Bayah, whose ideas I think are, you know, far more significant in many respects, I explore this, you know, in the latter half of the book, actually, in, in greater detail. Abdullah bin Bayah, I think in a, a way that is unprecedented in Islamic history, basically justifies, um, you know, executive absolutism over and above any Sharia dissent. So this is an interesting case of a religious scholar who basically says that my role in society should be sort of subordinated to the role of the ruler. This is something which is kind of the opposite of the way in which scholars saw themselves in much of history, certainly in pre-modern times. So, you know, I, I think that there's uh, interesting work, and I, I hope to explore Abdullah bin Bayer's work in future, in my own future writings, just philosophically and theologically, perhaps. I'm going to rush on to the next slide, which kind of jumps to 2013 from 2011. Some of my treatment of Abdullah bin Bayer looks at, you know, discussions that he engages in in 2012 and 2013, and indeed the chapter where I'm, I'm going to start forgetting the numbers, uh, the relevant numbers, but the chapter where I start to look at you know, the Egyptian coup also looks at, at the lead up to it from 2012 onwards and looks particularly at the activities of Ali Gumar and Ahmed al-Tayyib. But Ahmed al-Tayyib is particularly significant in the coup of 2013 because he is someone who is, as you can see, present during 
now President, then General El-Sisi's uh, constitutional declaration, so annulling the constitution in 2013. And so, uh, you know, he actually functions as someone who is offering religious legitimation to the Egyptian coup of 2013. And, you know, I don't think it's an accident that these religious figures, the Coptic Pope is actually seated next to him, if I recall correctly, I've obviously sort of cropped the image. Behind him is a, a figure who is associated with the Salafi Nur party. I don't think it's an accident that these religious figures are there to confer a certain degree of legitimacy upon uh, the act of the coup. Yet, you know, and as I say here, uh, the Rabbah massacre, you know, takes place the following month. So in July, we have the coup, and in the middle of August, we have the Rabbah massacre, and Human Rights Watch, you know, calls it somewhat notoriously, uh, one of the world's largest killings of demonstrators in a single day in recent history. And Ahmed al-Tayyib, you know, shows the limits of his support for the Egyptian regime, something that really transpires far more interestingly in successive years, even though he is instrumental in bringing about the Rabah massacre, uh, sorry, bringing about the Egyptian coup, which leads to the Rabah massacre. He expresses his disquiet at the massacre uh, at Rabah. Now, I'm going to talk more specifically about Rabah in a moment, but uh, I've taken this image from a website. I think it's Noon Post, uh, someone who's obviously quite opposed to Ali Gumar. But uh, what it says on the screen is Mufti al-Askar, the Mufti of the army. And in many respects, I think it's, um, you know, an accurate portrayal of the role that this person, at this point, he was the former Grand Mufti. Uh, it seems that the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, in their short stint in power, you know, arranged for Ali Goma to be retired, shall we say. And so, you know, he was now former Grand Mufti, but he became this uh, vociferous supporter behind the scenes initially and eventually out in the open, you know, as some of these recordings are eventually leaked. He's someone who basically privately, as I say, privately incites the killing of protesters in religious terms to the army specifically and the security services. And then uh, also subsequent to the Rabah massacre privately celebrates, you know, I actually have a chapter called Celebrating the Rabah massacre. I, I, I view him as actually engaged in sort of ratification, justifying and celebrating uh, the success of the Egyptian army against this horrible enemy, etc., uh, that is constituted by the Rabah, uh, the, the protesters at Rabah. I perhaps should have mentioned this much earlier. I mean, Rabah was basically the epicenter for a major protest after the Egyptian coup of 2013, where a, a large number of people, it, it was, I think, largely organized and supported by the Muslim Brotherhood, but people who were opposed to um, the coup, whether they're members of the Muslim Brotherhood or they were people who were opposed to the sort of reversion to a pre-democratic era in Egypt, had come together and they were protesting uh, the coup. And this persisted for weeks on end until the military and security forces came together on the 14th of August and, you know, engaged in this massacre. And I think, you know, on screen, I have two uh, books, well, a book and a report that I draw on in writing about the Rabat massacre. All according to plan is Human Rights Watch's kind of forensic treatment of what actually happened. And, and Human Rights Watch basically estimates, uh, estimates that likely over a thousand people were killed uh, on the 14th of August by the security forces uh, in Egypt. I actually sort of uh, explore using to a certain extent the data that Human Rights Watch has brought forward. And I suggest it may well be higher than uh, over a thousand. It could be as much as 2000 or even higher. 
and uh, into the hands of the soldiers is David Kirkpatrick's really penetrating and reflective um, sort of extensive narrative and uh, I mean David is a, uh, a journalist with the New York Times but really I think one of the most careful testimonies uh, regarding the Arab uprisings and revolutions uh, over the last decade uh, decade or so that we have in the English language and I, I draw on it quite liberally when outlining the narrative of the Rabah massacre and, and other parts. So, um, you know, just briefly about the Rabah massacre, I mean, it's, it was overwhelmingly unarmed. And so the killing of over a thousand protesters in that context uh, was particularly sort of shocking and striking. And uh, it was clear based on Human Rights Watch's assessment that there were there was the deliberate effort to liquidate, you know, actually kill people. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think that it, it's something that I spend, I think the chapter is chap, the latter part of chapter five, possibly chapter six, that basically explores this. And then I also look thereafter at the way in which various scholars opposed both the coup and the subsequent massacres and the sort of language that they used, the way in which scholars who I characterize as Islamist, um, by which I mean people who are broadly aligned to projects like the Muslim Brotherhood's um, sort of uh, project in Egypt, are, you know, they articulate their opposition to the coup in uh, the language of democracy. Uh, one of the points I make early on when looking at Qaradawi's um, sort of uh, support for the revolutions in the first place, he articulates it in the language of freedom. And he has this fascinating phrase, um, which is kind of a counterintuitive for a lot of people who think of Islamism or study Islamism. He says that um, freedom uh, has to be prioritized over the implementation of the Sharia. And um, I argue that this is actually, it, it sort of makes perfect sense in the Islamist universe, but it's something which is counterintuitive very often because of the ways in which the Islamist, Islamists are constructed in uh, sort of widespread narratives, shall we say. And so, you know, these are some of the scholars here. You have Ali al-Khardawi, uh, Yusuf al-Khardawi, now retired, of course. And then um, you have Ahmed al-Raisuni, who is now actually um, the head of the International Union of Muslim Scholars. So these are three scholars associated with this, uh, you know, organization based in Qatar. Um, I didn't really touch in great detail on the fact that Qatar is, you know, the Al Jazeera channel, which on which Qaradawi actually had a show, becomes somewhat instrumental in promoting the agenda of, um, as is well known and well studied, of the uh, Arab revolutions in 2011. And, you know, as Christian Ulrichson and others have pointed out, in a sense, the Qataris overplay their hand and have to backtrack subsequently. So uh, um, as I come towards the end, I just wanted to, uh, so this is something I discuss in greatest detail, probably in chapter nine of my book, the final sort of substantive chapter, and here you have um, Abdullah bin Bayer with Foreign Minister of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Abdullah bin Zayed. And uh, Abdullah bin Zayed basically bankrolls a project called the Forum for Promoting Peace in Muslim Societies. It's uh, very sort of like, you know, elegantly named and it makes you, uh, uh, gives very positive vibes, but that's what I argue is its purpose, of course. It is a front uh, institution in my estimation, one of uh, several, but one of the most important front institutions, uh, religious institutions for counter-revolutionary sort of activism, shall we say. And Abdullah bin Bayer, it's not an accident that he becomes the head of it, uh, given his juristic reasoning that, uh, you know, creates actual Islamic juristic justifications for autocracy. 
And um, by 2019, I believe, Abdullah uh, bin Baya becomes effectively the Grand Mufti, the chair of the Emirates Fatwa Council, as it's called, the Grand Mufti of the Emirates. But a lot of the sort of fatwas are, have this transnational ambition as well. So he becomes a major tool in the toolbox of the Emirate, uh, United Arab Emirates soft power projection, in my estimation. And in 2020, I think it's in 2020, he, you know, within the space of a few months, both designates the United, uh, sorry, designates the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization as the Grand Mufti of the Emirates. So in religious terms, this had of course been done in legal terms within the UAE many years earlier. And he also ratifies the normalization with Israel. So he's perhaps the most senior scholar to have done this in the Arab world. And, you know, I also highlight, I've uh, done so in other writing on Abdullah bin Bayat, that he's actually also highly respected as a jurist. He's, you know, there's no question of his juristic credentials, shall we say. And um, so, uh, this is a bit of a provocative argument that I'm making uh, towards the tail end of chapter nine. And I basically argue that there's kind of, I, I twin the rise of anti-democratic religious discourses and the rise of ISIS. So uh, in a sense, the failure of democratic Islamism at, at the hands of scholars like Abdullah bin Bayer um, in particular, I think can be twinned uh, with the rise of ISIS. And, uh, I can't remember which chapter this is now, but uh, I remark how the Rabah massacre, a week after the Rabah massacre, of course, you have an even worse massacre in Syria with a chemical weapons attack. And so, um, you know, th those sorts of things, uh, the, permit the permission for the Rabah massacre on the part of, uh, I mean, these things are, of course, done in subtle ways, but, uh, you know, the, the lack of reaction to the Rabah massacre also, in a sense, green lights the possibility of these sorts of horrendous uh, chemical attacks that we see um, you know one of many actually in um, Assad's uh, Syria of course over the years and so you know it uh, this isn't an original sort of observation that the failure of democracy and the rise of ISIS are twinnable as it were um, this is an observation uh, I make drawing on the uh, excellent work of Jean-Pierre Filiou and uh, he's got a book called uh, from deep state to Islamic state, and also uh, in the work of David Kirkpatrick that I've alluded to already. And I think that, you know, the, the UAE's signal sort of like successes have uh, allowed for these sorts of groups to emerge. And there's a kind of a somewhat macabre logic to the existence of groups like ISIS and the need for authoritarianism that I think many of us recognize in the region is part of the, the logic of authoritarianism in the region at the moment. So in my conclusion, um, in my conclusions, I kind of try and trace out, there are a certain set of questions that I outline in my introduction, a lot of which are to do with, you know, how do these different approaches to the Islamic scholarly tradition translate the uh, scriptural sources, the same scriptural sources very often that they draw on to um, come to such diametrically opposed conclusions and how cogent are the various arguments and so on. Um, perhaps the cogency component is not quite so thoroughly explored as you know, what sort of arguments are actually presented. And uh, in the conclusions, I kind of present an outline looking at some of the debates in the secondary literature and I position myself in those debates in a certain way. I roughly think that the Islamic tradition is of course, 
diverse and open to multiple readings. And so both the pro and the counter-revolutionary scholars um, can find resources to um, argue for their positions. Um, and, and this is manifestly clear throughout the book. Yet I would argue that um, you know, the pro-democratic scholars do you know, seem to deploy those resources somewhat more per persuasively, even though I don't systematically uh, engage in a comparison between those two uh, sort of sets of arguments. Um, and I conclude on, a, on what I think is a kind of hopeful note, which is that uh, you know, to a certain extent, these kinds of uh, figures like Bin Baya and you know, this kind of pro-autocracy discourse is necessary in the face of the weakness of the, the current status quo uh, in the sense that the current pro-autocracy arguments that were, were and continue to be uh, presented uh, you know, are not terribly persuasive to the audience uh, they are directed at. And this is why Islamic democracy will continue to be a threat in the region for the region's autocrats. That's a kind of hopeful note on which I conclude. I hope that that was interesting. If anyone has any questions, just wanted to uh, re-highlight if anyone would like to get their hands on the book and get a discount that's uh, available through um, those two codes. I'll leave them on for five or 10 seconds if that's all right with you, Mike. But thank you very much for having me. And I hope that that was interesting. Thank you very much. Absolutely no doubt about it. That was absolutely fascinating, Osama. I think a lot of us sometimes wonder if there's anything new to be written about the Arab revolutions, but you've proved conclusively that they're, they're a, a, a really fascinating dimension, but really hasn't been looked at in, in, in that way before. Looking at the role of the, the theologians, the ulama, and how they talk about it, that's been largely, as you said, ignored. And I think it's fascinating that you, that you have dealt with it in this way and looked not only at those who supported it, um, which has perhaps been covered a little bit, but, but those who actually were critical and supported the official perspective, which is, is, is fascinating, if, if rather depressing, I think, on certain, on certain levels. We now have time for some questions, if anybody wants to put a question to Osama. What we do, we would invite you to put, put your question, write your question into the question and answer function. If you look on the bar of this webinar, you'll see a little Q&A with a couple of speech bubbles coming out of that. And if you press that, that will allow you to type in a question. So please type in a question. If you would like to be identified, do put your name in, um, or you may be automatically identified. If you wouldn't, don't want to put your name in, that's absolutely fine and put that in. But if you want to put your um, questions in, and I'll try and field as many of them as I can to, to Osama in the, in, in the time that remains. We have about, about uh, 25 minutes, half an hour for some questions. So hopefully we'll get some questions. So please do put your questions in. In between time, I, I'd like to take advantage of my position as chair to uh, ask my own question. Your, the book obviously focuses on, on Egypt and, and I think you justify that very well because of the centrality Egypt has had, not only just in the, the revolutions themselves, but actually in the Arab world certainly in the last hundred years. But I wonder whether the, what happens in Egypt and the sort of issues discussing, to what extent do they relate to the explicit position of the Muslim Brotherhood as an organization? Now, as you know, a lot of the, the, the official discourse and criticism of, what, uh, of the revolution and of the Muslim Brotherhood was about the Muslim Brotherhood as an organization, particularly the, the accusation that it was some sort of dangerous cult. And that leads me to wonder 
to get you to say a little bit more, perhaps, on the dynamic between the, the ulama, the traditional ulama, and the Muslim Brotherhood, which I think has always been very interesting in Egypt. And to what extent do you think a lot of the things you've been discussing are, are of a, a development out of this rather interesting historical and rather often strained relationship between the two? Or whether you think, as, as, you've, if you've, as you've portrayed in your tape, is actually a much broader set of issues that refer across the region. So I don't know if that makes sense as a question. Forgive me, your, your sound cut out briefly when you were saying... Oh, sorry. As I understand you, you're basically saying that to what extent are the Muslim Brotherhood and their various positions conditioned more by their positionality as Egyptian actors as opposed to their engagement with or, or kind of fraught relationship, shall we say, with the Ulama? Yes, looking at the tradition, but particularly the Egyptian context and whether it's a lot of these issues about the relationship historically between the, the Brotherhood and yeah. the more traditional Ulama. Yes, I mean, it's been a very sort of fraught relationship, I think, um, through much of that history, because the ulama, of course, um, have are centered on the Azhar. And, uh, you know, famously, um, you've had plenty of religious figures uh, and ulama, indeed, who have been members of the Muslim Brotherhood, but they their authority, in a sense, has been subordinated to the organization rather than to, you know, their authority as religious um, sort of authorities unto themselves. And I, I can't remember whose phrase this is, but um, it, it's quoted in a, an edited volume, a fantastic edited volume on Yusuf al-Qaradawi called Global Mufti, uh, where um, in, in a chapter, I forget who the author is, called Yusuf al-Qaradawi and al-Azhar, the nature of a special relationship. Qaradawi is one of the very few scholars that we can think of who's who've been able to sort of like navigate this tightrope, so to speak, of keeping both on the good side of the ulama as a class and maintaining his uh, considerable authority as an alim. He's seen and highly regarded as a jurist, but at the same time, you know, always played up the fact that he is a student of Hassan al-Banna, um, actually a direct student of Hassan al-Banna, and a member, a proud member of the Muslim Brotherhood. So, you know, he, he's always um, in public worn the Azhari garb. As soon as you see him, you can immediately identify him as an Azhari. But he's also a very proud member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think this is hopefully answering your question somewhat. I think it's the case that, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood have struggled to do that because the religious authority of the ulama is a competing sovereignty of sorts to the authority of the institution of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood's resilience and its you know, continued existence, Shadi Hamid talks about, for you know, um, nearly 100 years at this point, to a certain extent are a function of it being a very regimented organization that respects the hierarchy of the organization rather than the sort of non-hierarchical hierarchy, if, if I can coin a phrase, of the ulama, because as scholars, everyone can debate, everyone has a right to have an opinion. Um, and scholars are not, you know, uh, scholars are <laughs> notorious for not really being very organized when it comes to thinking in, in regimented terms of an organization. So in that regard, I think the, the Muslim Brotherhood will have its own internal logic when it thinks about how Islam operates. And I think that will always have a certain degree of friction with the way in which the ulama will think about, you know, things in juristic or theological terms. I, I hope that somewhat answers the question that you were asking. No, that answers the question very well. Yes, I was thinking really, Karadari is, as you said, the key figure in that respect. He actually bridges those two traditions. Right, Thank right. you.
We're beginning to get questions coming in, and I'll, I'll ask one of them. The first one I'll go to comes from Iftakar Malik. Thank you for joining us. And Iftakar says, um, Ahmed Kuru, in his recent book, highlights the long-term legacy of collaboration between the authority and the ulama at the expense of civic and enterprising classes, leading to authoritarianism, as well as civilizational decline. Individuals are vital, but shouldn't we be focusing on social and theological trajectories within the societies which keep on throwing up such figures as these ulama? So um, I, I've only read sort of a couple of pages from the introduction of Ahmed Kuru's work. And I, I must say, I, I'm not terribly sympathetic to his analysis in the sense of it is, uh, to a certain extent, it doesn't really engage the discourses of the ulama and uh, these sorts of historical grand narrative sort of uh, attempts at grand narratives uh, at casting the ulama as a certain type across history, I, which I, I get a sense of. In, in his um, argument, um, I, I don't find terribly compelling. The ulama, I, I don't really have a very clear answer to this, to be honest. Um, I, I don't think the ulama have undermined civic and enterprising classes in the way that someone like Ahmed Kuru or perhaps Timur Quran in a slightly different context uh, is arguing. And I think, you know, um, the work of my uh, colleague in uh, the department of uh, at QEH, um, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name right now, but our, our colleague and associated with the Middle East Center, the economic historian, fantastic economic historian. Um, who Adil went, Malik. Adil Malik. I, I got Malik in my name, but I was wondering if that was coming from Iftikhar's name. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he has an excellent review, I think, of Timur Quran's uh, Long Divergence, which makes a, a similar but you know, somewhat different argument um, about economic history as opposed to authoritarianism. Um, you know, I, I think that those sorts of broad brush um, arguments, as qualified and careful as they are, uh, we need to be careful about sort of teleological historiographies, Whig historiographies, in my estimation. But to do justice to Ahmed Kuru's work, and I hope to uh, engage it in my future work, I would need to read it carefully, obviously. So I hope that that's somewhat useful. Thank you. I have a question um, here now from Jack Dickens, uh, who thanks you for a fascinating lecture. Thank you. And Jack wants to know, are there, is there any indication as to what type of democracy the pro-revolution ulama in Egypt would have desired to build? Would they desire the type of democracy that we saw take root in Tunisia, or would they be more inclined to support the creation of a political system more like that of revolutionary Iran? I mean, in the, the year or so that uh, certainly Mohammed Morsi was in, um, this is me speaking, by the way, just adding my own little bit. Mohammed Morsi, we saw we saw some element of that, and that had a lot of cr criticism about the way it was run. And I wonder if, on the theological aspect, whether you could add something on that. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Jack. I, mean, I think a uh, fantastic question. Thank you very much, Jack. And I think, um, in a sense, the Egyptian ulama would be somewhere in between. I think that would be a, a, a good way to put it. So uh, Rashid Ghanoushi is, uh, and Andrew March has a fantastic book on this, uh, The Caliphate of Man, uh, Popular Sovereignty, and uh, I forget the rest of the subtitle. But in essence, uh, I think that Rashid Ghanoushi's practice in the Tunisian context was far more pragmatic. He was far more willing to sort of engage in a, a pragmatic dialogue with, uh, you know, um, more secular forces. Um, yet, uh, mainstream Islamists of the type that I study, um, you know, not so much in, in this book as in, in my other work, largely unpublished, um, they, they are very eager to highlight that we don't, 
believe in theocracy. Okay, and what do they mean by that? They mean the model that is uh, found in Iran. Now, I mean, I think people could reasonably argue, well, you know, theocracy is a, a concept which means that you're bringing religion into the political sphere and you still believe that that's what you're, what is uh, appropriate to do. I, I certainly think that it wouldn't, you know, uh, as I argue, again, briefly elsewhere, mostly in unpublished work, you know, these, these people aren't arguing for liberal democracy by any stretch of the imagination. Shadi Hamid, you know, talks about this in his first book, Temptations of Power. He calls it illiberal democracy, and I don't like that label because, you know, to a certain extent, you're defining something by what it isn't, but also illiberal is a very sort of loaded phrase in, in our culture. I would say, I would call it Islamic democracy. And the way in which I characterize this is that um, liberalism uh, is, in liberal democracy, liberalism is a check on a majoritarianism. In Islamic democracy, Islam is a check on majoritarianism. And so, um, you know, that's how I would see it. Now that causes all sorts of anxieties within, um, you know, particularly Western policy circles. And I think, uh, Michael, if, if you'll sort of permit me on your comment about like, how Mohammed Morsi actually acted. Again, Shadi Hamid and other scholars, uh, and David Kirkpatrick talks about this in his you know, book, uh, Into the Hands of the Soldiers. They all comment that in practice, when you, Shadi Hamid's looking at it as a quantitative social scientist, as a political scientist, you know, quantitatively speaking, Morsi was not really a dictator. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of work that way. And so, you know, there is a certain perception in my estimation in the West that if someone identifies with Islam, then they will necessarily go towards a kind of authoritarian theocracy. And I would just point out that, you know, that presupposition doesn't always hold very well in their discourses um, where for decades they've been arguing against autocracy, particularly since that's the main thing that they suffer from in the region, right? And so, um, but it, it would be, you know, these are untested because, you know, the autocratic forces in the region have always had the upper hand, unfortunately. And even in Tunisia now, we are seeing that. Sorry if that's an overly long-winded response, but I hope that answers the question. No, that then answers it very nicely. We have a couple of questions coming in, inevitably asking you to sort of, sort of look at a little a, a broader focus, looking at other aspects in other countries. Right. Um, particular one coming in from Salma Daudi, asking about the situation in, in, in Syria. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for your question, Salma. And Salma asked specifically, I was wondering if you could perhaps discuss a little bit the threat that pro-democracy Islamic scholars to the Syrian regime. Recently, the Assad regime has effectively forced Syria's Grand Mufti into retirement and seems to be positioning itself as a secular force in the region, even if the reality seems to contradict this narrative. Are these tensions reflective of broader disagreements within influential Islamic authorities on the Syrian revolution? Right. And uh, I mean, the Syrian revolution, I actually lived in Syria from 2005 to 2006. I was an undergraduate here, of course, and I was sent there when it was possible to travel to Syria. So I, I have a, a deep and abiding love for the Syrian people. Sadly, my scholarship does not explore Syria quite as systematically. And obviously, like uh, Thomas Piret and other great scholars have uh, done the really defining work on the Syrian uh, revolution. So I, I don't, I, di I wasn't aware of this, um, I assume, relatively recent development. I mean, it's interesting to think about, if I may speculate for a while, the, the Grand Mufti, and I, I assume we're talking about Hassuna here, uh, the former Grand Mufti now. Uh, was of course a stalwart of the you know, Assad regime. 
the sort of, uh, and the Grand Mufti before him, of course, uh, people like Kaftaro and others have for decades been the stalwarts of the Assads. Um, and so, uh, you know, in that regard, I, I think it, it would be interesting to me if that shift to a more secular orientation is now being adopted systematically. There's always been a tension within the Syrian context, in my estimation, because of the Alawi background of the um, the heads of the regime, but the fact that the Grand Mufti has always been a Sunni, quite a mainstream Sunni, in my estimation, even if they've been politically, you know, not necessarily mainstream, and in being so aligned to the dictator. And so I, I remember when I lived in Syria that um, the Sunnis were happy that their dictator was secular. You know, some, some Sunnis would express that to me, you know, at least they're secular, right? <laughs> in a sense that they're not going to sort of start interfering within our religious sort of world uh, as Alawis, for example. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that, you know, the, the clearing of that space for, from the state's uh, sphere of influence makes a great deal of sense for uh, Assad as a dictator, but I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how the average Sunni would respond to it. They might think, okay, well, it's great. We never really respected the Grand Mufti anyway, or something like that. But they might, I mean, Syrians, I noticed, and forgive me if this is a bit of an overgeneralization, but I, I noticed many Syrians would consider themselves quite devout, and perhaps some of them would be uncomfortable that there's no sort of like public voice of religion or something like this. So it's just speculation on my part for what it's worth. Thank you, Osama. Next question comes from uh, um, not only a friend and a colleague, Marilyn Boob, and uh, Marilyn will also be giving a talk in this series later this term. But thank you very much for joining us and thank you for your question, Marilyn. And Marilyn's really inviting you, Osama, to look at more recent developments in Egypt. And specifically, she's curious about the seeming unstoppable, unstoppable movement of El Sisi's agenda to implement a new Dubai in Egypt and how these defining themselves as Islamic actors deal with this. I don't know if there's a particularly interesting with, with the increasing links with, with the Emirates and whether these, how are the, the defend? I suspect behind Marin's question is the idea of how are the defenders of what happened certainly at Rabba and what happened in 2013 dealing with this new dimension? So, I mean, um, there's been a considerable amount of tension within Egypt between the Sheikh al-Azhar and Assisi over the last four or five years. So, I mean, there's, there's been an interesting sort of and somewhat counterintuitive coup on the part of uh, the Egyptian al-Azhar in that the Azhar in the 2012 uh, constitution managed to get a certain degree of independence. So the Sheikh al-Azhar is now to be uh, appointed by the Hayat Kibar al-Ulama. And for some reason that was continued in the CC sort of like constitution of, I, I believe it was 2014. And so, um, you know, there is a tension between, and so Sisi would love to actually replace, from what I can tell, replace Ahmed al-Tayyib with Ali Gumar, who is, you know, shows absolute fealty to the needs of the military state in a way that, as I kind of indicated, uh, al-Tayyib does not seem to be willing to countenance. And so, you know, you do have a situation where there's already some tension between the most important um, sort of religious figure in Egypt and Assisi. Yet at the same time, I suspect someone like Ali Gumara, who is, um, you know, really championed by the state, is, you know, going to be quite in line with a lot of these sorts of agendas. Um, so the new Dubai, I mean, 
that's that's a tall order, and and Walter would Walter Ambrust would be the obvious person to comment on the sort of unfeasibility of that sort of a move and and the attempts to create a new capital city and kind of redo the urban geography of uh, of the cities in order to allow for you know a, a neoliberal remaking of Egypt that also prevents the possibility of these kinds of revolutionary moments. And I think that those scholars who are fully aligned, like Ali Gomar, and there are others I haven't mentioned. You know, Osama Sayyid was a student, is a student of Ali Gomar's, and he became the sort of al mustashar li maktab al-Rais, like advisor to the office of the presidency, meaning to Sisi, his father-in-law is a senior as a scholar on the Hayat Kibar al-Ulama. So I, I would suspect that it depends on where people fit in to the various fractures within the ulama classes. But I, I, I maybe close with um, invoking Nathan Brown's latest book, which I really uh, love, uh, loved, uh, Arguing Islam, where he basically, uh, this is a line I quote in my own book, he says that, you know, it seemed that the ulama classes that he met with were roughly divided 50-50 on supporting the coup versus opposing the coup. And, um, you know, uh, I think, there are all sorts of dilemmas about getting involved in the political space, which would create, um, you know, a significant number, that kind of 50-50 divide. So I, I suspect um, about 50-50 would be in the case with respect to supporting CC on anything. Thank you. Building off of that, just to get you to say something about foreign influence more broadly, and particularly coming from a question from William Damoni, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that may be our good friend Frank Damoni, but the question is asking about foreign interference in um, Islamic so text I, reform Islam, and he refers especially, particularly to the Tony Blair Institute invo involvement with, as, uh, in Al-Azhar, which I wasn't aware of, I must admit myself. Right. I, I mean, I, I'm not specifically aware of the Tony Blair Institute's involvement, but uh, Blair has been, you know, a, shall we say, a colourful character. I think that's the most polite way of putting this uh, in the region. And um, certainly, Blair, should we say, good grief. Um, and, uh, and, and basically, um, I, let me, you know, recount an anecdote. I, I visited Egypt in 2007 and was visiting an American scholar who had enrolled in the Azhar and was studying to become an alim, so an American convert to Islam, actually, who's now a, a, a respected scholar in North America. And um, he complained that the Blair government Ha, uh, or I can't remember which ministry, the FCO, I think, under the Blair government, had donated a huge amount of money to the Azhar to, um, you know, strengthen its sort of faculty of humanities effectively. And the Azhar and the Egyptian government had unilaterally redirected it to pharmacy and medicine or something like that. And he was, you know, fuming about this, saying like, you know, for all our dislike of, you know, Blair's shenanigans in other parts of the Middle East, you know, that, that would have been something that would have very much helped strengthen the Azhar as an institution. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, these sorts of foreign forces can be quite complicated. And, you know, the obvious foreign force in the region is, of course, the United States with its um, billions of uh, dollars uh, of uh, military aid. But of course, that military aid, as David Kirkpatrick so masterfully documents in his fantastic book, which I can't recommend enough, Into the Hands of the Soldiers, the third time I'm mentioning this, um, <laughs> is dwarfed by the amounts of money coming from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. It's dwarfed by orders of magnitude, perhaps, right? And so, you know, 
when we think of foreign forces, I think we, or foreign influences, we also need to think, you know, uh, regionally and not just transregionally as well. Yeah, I hope that, you know, answers the question to a certain extent. Thank you very much. We have time just for one more question, which comes from another another colleague of ours. It's not I'm not choosing these in a, uh, a particularly biased way. Most of the questions have been coming from from, from colleagues here. And the colleague comes from Sausan Najjar. Thank you for joining us, Sausan. And Sausan asks a question. Obviously, all this, all the, all the um, authorities you've been naming are all male religious authorities. And she wondered whether there were any female preachers or female religious authorities got involved in this discussion on authoritarian regimes and on, on the Arab uprisings more generally. Absolutely fantastic question. And, and Sosan, I know her work has also explored the fascinating world of female preachers in the Moshidat, as they are known in, uh, in Morocco. So you know, I think those sorts of initiatives like the Moshidat or Turkey has, um, you know, this entire cohort of female preachers that have emerged. I think they're less salient in the political spaces that I'm looking at. I've, I hope this isn't just my myopia, but the, the people I've focused on have been these um, sort of top ranking, highly influential, um, very often government appointed uh, figures who are both um, scholars of high repute and well-established in their academic credentials, as it were, but also uh, politically extremely uh, significant. And uh, no female scholars, uh, you know, appeared in my radar in either Egypt, which is the main focus of the book, or Tunisia. Tunisia is interesting because for a period, and I don't know if this is still the case, the spokesperson for Anahta was a woman, a daughter of Rashid Anushi. And so, you know, those sorts of things do happen occasionally in the political space in places like Tunisia. But I, you know, even in the political space in Egypt, it seemed to be quite a bit more limited. And, you know, this is an ongoing complaint I have. I'm, I'm speaking for a moment with my seminarian hat on, by the way, with the fact that, you know, I have colleagues who uh, went and studied at the Azhar in the female sections, and they said that the teaching was atrocious and it was an afterthought, obviously. And, you know, that sort of reality means that um, serious theologians and jurists are unlikely to be produced in those sorts of centers. I'd like to be proven wrong and I'd like to be shown to be ignorant about that. Um, I would welcome that. But unfortunately, to my knowledge, that seems to be the reality at the moment. And, you know, may it change, as it were. Thank you, Osama. Yes, that may, may it change. I'm afraid the clock is against us and we've come to the end of our hour, but thank you so much, Osama, for a fascinating talk and being able to boil down quite a, a really quite complex issue into such an accessible and such understandable and such an interesting way. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sure there are many people out there, myself included, who will be going out to buy the book uh, fairly soon after this, uh, this seminar ends. So thank you, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And I really want to thank all of the, I mean, I was really shocked by the number of attendees, incidentally. So I really want to thank everyone who stuck it out for the entire hour as well for your interest in the book. And um, I hope that it's something which, it, I mean, uh, I don't want to dissuade you from buying the book, but I understand that Oxford Scholarship Online will be sort of producing the, the PDF of it in a few short months. And so uh, that should be downloadable from your university networks at some point, <laughs> right? So, um, but if you, if you would like to buy the expensive hardback, you know, please feel free to uh, use the discount codes that I will be sharing on my Twitter and, and, and I'm sure will be shared on the YouTube video of this video as well.
Yes, we'll make sure we put it on. But thank you very much for putting on that because that's, that does make a big difference. So thank you very much again. And again, I join with Osama in thanking you, all of you, for joining us this week. Please do join us next week when we have another colleague at Middle East Centre, Neil Ketchley, speaking. But in between time, thanks so much for joining us and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you again, Osama. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>